Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text is Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek Yahweh rejoice. Seek Yahweh in his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is Yahweh our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel is an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of Yahweh tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the people set him free, he made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure, and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And Yahweh made his people very fruitful, and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them, and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, And the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering, and fire to give light by night. They asked, And he brought quail, and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought out his people with joy, 
his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Today's psalm primarily is a recap of the books of Genesis and Exodus that calls upon God's people to remember the things he has done for for them, for their family, for generations, how he has provided, cared, saved them, and to rejoice in him because of it. Give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, that's prayer, make known his deeds among the peoples. So pray to God and share him with the people, share him with the world. Very similar today. I mean, it's very much a love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself kind of idea. Now, I will point out that verse 1 can be found in Isaiah chapter 12. I don't know that that necessarily means Isaiah wrote this, or perhaps Isaiah is quoting from this psalm as he wrote his prophecy, but you'll see the, the connection at least. Then, that Isaiah 12 passage is part of our liturgy together. So the service of prayer and preaching has an Old Testament canticle, and these words show up in that. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. It's hard to not just keep singing. I, I like that canticle. Anyway, sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. So again, we sing to God, and as we're singing to God, it is telling our neighbor about him. This is one of the reasons, again, why I think a lot of history within Lutheranism has stressed the idea that hymns, music, whatever music it is, should teach. It should be of such a quality that it, it actually gives the hearer something. Not necessarily emotions. Emotions aren't wrong. For example, they've created by God, they're broken. But anyway, the point is not to sway emotions. The point is to teach. If you can sing a song and it teaches you nothing of Christ, then it's not a good Christian song. And look at this one. What does it teach? Well, it teaches the people about what God has done for them, for their patriarch forefathers before them, how he saved his people. There's a lot of meat to this psalm. It would that all of our music and hymnody were the same. Glory in his name. His name has been placed on you in the waters of baptism as you were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You were sealed on the forehead, to use the language of the book of Revelation, and so, yes, we glory in his name. His name is the only name under heaven by which man is saved. Let the hearts of those who seek Yahweh rejoice. Why? Because Yahweh has made himself known to us. Yahweh has revealed himself. He's revealed his salvation in and through Jesus. Seek Yahweh and his strength. Seek his presence continually. It could be a good family conversation there. What does this look like? What does it look like to seek God? What does it look like to seek his presence continually? Notice that word. That's a key word here. So to seek the Lord, I think for us, again, prayer, 
really the first couple of verses, that we would pray, that we would trust in him, we would call upon his name, and we would share him with others. Doing these things is seeking God. And the Lord already dwells in our hearts, or we would not be able to do such things. We seek him, we love him, we serve him. Now that we do this continually is a worthwhile reminder of why we're here. We are not here to be Americans. We are not here to live happy lives or abundant lives or lives of, of great glory and honor among men. We are here to serve God, to love him and to love our neighbor. And could that bring earthly glory? It might. At this point in history, in this culture, it doesn't look like it would, but it could. But we're not here for that. We're not here to think of ourselves. We're not here to think of our own legacy. We're part of the body of Christ. We want the body of Christ to prosper. And by that, I mean simply to, to continue on. As Christ has promised, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. We want to see as many people in the kingdom as, as we can. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Those miracles and judgments can overlap. The book of Exodus often calls the plagues miracles or mighty works of power. And so they're both a miracle and a judgment. As God sends, for example, the hail on the land. And it's a miraculous event. It was not the norm. And yet... It's also a judgment against Egypt for their idolatry, for chasing after false gods. And so the Lord, through those miracles in Egypt, by the way, Exodus 7, 5 kind of touches at this, the purpose of the plagues is to teach the Egyptians, to call them to repent, so that they would realize that their gods that they worship and trust are false and cannot deliver them, but that Israel's God is real and true and good, and that he can deliver his people and he is delivering his people, as they see through plagues 4 through 10, those plagues not harming the land where the Israelites lived. But it starts earlier than that. Anyway, we'll come back to that. It starts with Abraham here, verse 6, reminding us that we are Abraham's children and offspring. This takes us to Romans chapter 9. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So if you believe in the promise God has made, that he would send a savior to crush the serpent's head to save his people from death, you're a child of Abraham, even if not by blood. You're a child of Abraham by the blood of Christ. Thanks be to God. That's the point of Romans 9, and that's what we see here as our connection point. Our original psalmist would have been writing to the people of Israel for them to sing this, but we can also sing this. He is our God. His judgments are in all the earth. That simply points out he is our king, but he is also king of all creation. There is no place in this world that he is not king. 
He remembers his covenant forever. And we would talk as Christians about that both as the old covenant and the new. The psalmist will focus on the old, the covenant God made with the people of Israel, that he would make them into a nation, give them the promised land. But we would see also the new covenant Christ makes by the shedding of his blood on the cross on Good Friday for us. A covenant that forgives our sins and welcomes us into paradise. Word he commanded for a thousand generations. A thousand generations, even moving quickly and saying it's only 20 years, that would be 20,000 years. The earth has not been around anywhere near that long. Uh, the kind of a really literal reading of the book of Genesis would put you in the six to 7,000 year range. I like to kind of throw out as a, just a guesstimate that maybe 4762 B.C. could be a good year uh, as a guess of when God created, uh, give or take a few years, right? Uh, the, the text of Genesis, I think we can make use of it in that way, but it's not, it's not pinpointable. So there's an estimate. That would mean, uh, to take a thousand generations literally here, that Christ won't come back for another 13, 14,000 years. So, do we take this that literally? Not really. His word commanded for a thousand generations. That could be the prophetic use of the number 10, the biblical number for completion. So, thousand is 10 times 10 times 10. This is a complete completion of all the generations of man. God's word is never ending. It has been, it will be, it will be forever. The covenant he made with Abraham, Genesis 15, he swore to Isaac, Genesis 26, confirmed to Jacob, Genesis 28. I will give you the land of Canaan as your portion. So this becomes the promised land. And God indeed gave it to them, fulfilled that in 1406 B.C. under the command of Joshua. If you in number of little account, sojourners in it. So Abraham, Abram at first moves to the land of Canaan much earlier than this, before God has actually given it to the people of God, the Israelites, the patriarchs are going to live in that land. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob will live in the land of Canaan, and God will provide for them, strengthening them so that they can not be oppressed by anyone. I mean, think of Genesis 14, for example. You have the, what's called the Battle of the Vale of Sabdim, where Keterlaumer, king of Elam, has an army consisting of three other kings in his alliance, and they go to war against five kings that are in an alliance down by the, the land we would call Sodom and Gomorrah, and they win. It's a slaughter, and they capture the people of Sodom. They keep, take them captive, take them prisoner, take them back, aiming to take them back to their land because these have failed to pay tribute to Keterlaumer is really what this has all been about. And as they're going, as they're on their way marching back north to then turn east and return home, Abraham chases them down and defeats them. Four kings just victorious, reveling in their plunders, and Abraham with his household defeats them. Not an army, a house. Now, granted, his household had 318 men in it. It was a big house. But... That's the kind of strength that the Lord gives. 
Verse 16, summoned a famine on the land, is a reference to the seven-year famine that Joseph will help to guide the land of Egypt through. And that's verse 17. God sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So we have Genesis 37 through 50 as our context here. Genesis 37, where he'll have his dreams that are mentioned in verse 19. And then he'll have his brother's hatred of him. They'll sell him as a slave. He goes to Potiphar's house. So that's verse 18 here. And he's in that until, well, the word of God is testing him. He's in that until his dreams have come to pass. That is, his brothers will bow down to him. Because in verse 20 here, referring to Genesis 41, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, will release Joseph from his prison and set him over his entire kingdom. Verse 23, Israel comes to Egypt, that is Jacob, moves to the land of Egypt, Genesis 47, our reference here, sojourned in the land of Ham, that's mentioned twice in the psalm, Ham being one of the three sons of Noah, and part of his offspring moved down to northern Africa. Yahweh made his people very fruitful. So they started as just 70, a small group when they came down. 430 years later, When they leave Egypt in the Exodus, the men number 603,550 fighting men. That's 20 years and up. Likely a couple million at least in their population size. Made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts. There here would be the Egyptians, not the Israelites. He turned their Egyptian hearts to hate his Israelite people to deal craftily with his servants. Indeed, God hardened the hearts of Egypt, namely the heart of Pharaoh, against his people. And then he sends Moses. So God is doing this already to work his judgments in order to bring some of Egypt to repent, which they do. We learn from the accounts of the book of Numbers that some of the Egyptians actually leave Egypt with Israel in the Exodus. A mixed multitude had gone up. So Exodus 3 is mentioned in verse 26 that God sends Moses and Aaron. They perform his signs, his miracles, a reference to Exodus chapters 7 through 12 and the 10 plagues. Verse 28 gives us darkness, which was the ninth plague in chapter 10 of Exodus. Then you move to the waters turning into blood. That's the first plague in Exodus 7. The land swarmed with frogs, the second plague from chapter 8. And then, even in the chambers of their kings, I do want to note that, the idea that Pharaoh himself, with all his power, could not stop this, could not resist the Lord's doing and strength. He spoke, there came swarms of flies, that's the fourth plague from chapter 8, and then gnats is the third plague from chapter 8. He gave them hail for rain, that's Exodus 9, the seventh plague, fiery lightning bolts throughout their land. That would be the Egyptians' land, but it's not in Goshen where the Israelites live. Plagues 4 through 10 don't impact Israel. Spoke and the locusts came, the eighth plague from Exodus 10, devouring the vegetation of the land. And then verse 36 here is the tenth plague from Exodus chapter 12, the striking down of the firstborn, which the Israelites avoid by the Passover, sacrificing the lamb at twilight, painting the door on their door, the blood on their doorposts, and then consuming the lamb in haste. 
because they would leave Egypt that very night. Brought out Israel with gold and silver. So as Israel leaves Egypt, they plunder their neighbors. They ask them for whatever they have of value, and their neighbors just give it to them because they want them to leave, get out of here, thinking that if Israel stays any longer, it will bring more death. He spread a cloud for a covering, fire to give light by night, a reference to the pillar of fire that we learn about in Exodus chapter 13, fire and cloud that God uses to lead his people, and yes, to cover them as that cloud of pillar of cloud defended them from the Egyptian army in Exodus 14. They asked, he brought quail, gave them bread from heaven, that would be manna, this is Exodus 16, opened the rock and water gushed out, Exodus 17. No mention of Israel complaining here. Israel grumbled, complained against God, rebelled against God, and he provided for them miraculously. The psalmist just picks up on the miracles. He's not looking at the people's sinfulness. He's looking at God's faithfulness, and that's important for us. He doesn't look at our sinfulness. We are forgiven in the blood of Christ. He only looks instead to his own faithfulness. What has he promised? And he's going to keep that promise. And that's what we see next. He remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant, the one to whom he made the promise. So a great family conversation for you today. What promises has he made you that he will also remember? And there we focus on the gift of forgiveness that we have in Christ's crucifixion, the gift of life, a resurrection of the dead from his Easter resurrection, a paradise that he's preparing for us where we get to dwell with him forever. He will remember his promises. He is faithful to the end. So he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Exodus 15, you can see them rejoice in song. He gave them the lands of the nations. That doesn't happen until you get to the book of Joshua uh, as they have to wander the wilderness for 40 years first. But they do. They take it. The Lord gives them the possession of the fruit of the people's toil. So they get... They get the Canaanites' vineyards that they had worked for. The Israelites had done none of that work. God just gives it to them. They might keep his statutes and observe his laws. It was his calling that they would be his people. Praise Yahweh. That's how the psalm ends. So the psalmist praising God for his many mighty works. And again, we can do the same as Christians today, knowing the good things Christ has done for us 